Yeah, I think, you know, the ICA is always, from an educational platform, talks about that going to the cinema needs to be an event. And I think what Barbie taught us in spades was that those cinemas who leaned into the eventizing, the drink specials, you know, within the certainly the guidelines of Warner Brothers, but just made it a, a party and sort of rode the hype, but... I think those cinemas who did the event side of things or created the experience beyond just the movie of Barbie are the ones that overperform. So I think that's the big sort of exclamation point on the summer. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, the Pulse of Theatrical Exhibition, joined here today by Sean Robbins, Chief Analyst at Box Office Pro, and Russ Fisher of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. This week's episode of the Box Office Podcast is brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks, the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house, luxury, and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment, event cinema, and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique, revenue-generating advertising programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Focus, a series that profiles industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading luxury cinema circuits. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks.com. In this edition of Indie Focus, we will be speaking to Rich Dottridge of the ICA and Warehouse Cinemas in our feature segment, where he will be going over the priorities for the ICA, of course, the Independent Cinema Alliance, as we look forward and a look back at how 2023 has been for the more art house and independent side of the cinema scene in North America. But before we get to that, our latest news and box office right after this. We're recording this on Monday, the day before the first day of the Geneva Convention, which if you're listening to this episode, when it comes out, this is uh, Thursday, the final day of the Geneva Convention taking place at Lake Geneva in Wisconsin. Rich Dottridge also uh, getting getting an award at the Geneva Convention this year for his leadership role in the ICA and warehouse cinemas. But as I said, recording this technically the day before the Geneva Convention starts, And we have some good news, thank goodness. Russ, can you give us an update on the news that came in overnight about where we are with this ongoing strike situation? Sunday evening, the WGA announced that they had reached a tentative agreement with the AMPAS organization, the Collective Producers Bargaining Structure. Specifically, the WGA said, quote, we have reached a tentative agreement on a new 2023 MBA, which is to say an agreement in principle on all deal points subject to drafting final contract language, end quote. And then it also went on to say, quote, we can say with great pride that this deal is exceptional with meaningful gains and protections for writers in every sector of the membership, end quote, which 
seeing other things that were going around last night, this deal seems to cover concerns over artificial intelligence, over the structure of writers' rooms, which primarily affects television and how television is written and produced, and other points as well. So it's tremendously good news, obviously, as far as the ongoing strike. The WGA was the first to strike, and they were followed by SAG, the Actors Guild. So this leads to a good deal of hope that SAG and Ampus might also reach a similar deal soon, which would mean that everybody could get back to work pretty quickly. I mean, if like this deal, by the time you listen to this podcast, if everybody's happy with this deal, it might be signed and writers could already be back to work by the time you're listening. So after nearly five months of stalemate, and, and a thing at the beginning of the weekend where Ampus said through kind of trade publications that they were about to put up their best and final best offer. Best and final. Uh, Everyone's like, wait, <laughs> you don't have, you don't get all the say in whether this is the final offer. That's how negotiations yeah. work. <laughs> generated a lot of no like no small amount of mockery for that phrase and yet it seems like it actually was the best and final right. offer perhaps so you know whatever whatever it takes to get everybody back to work and to make sure that you know i think that writers really did have a raw deal on a number of things the way that residuals have been structured through streaming other big issues and if those are all addressed that's terrific it'd be great to see everybody going back you know, I know we're going to talk about how September has played out at the box office, and I don't think it's possible to have that conversation without an understanding or an awareness of the effect that these strikes have had on the industry overall. And so, yeah, this is this is a very big step. It's very good news. Yes, definitely. Uh, fingers crossed that all this will be sorted by Thursday, because as you mentioned, Russ, a lot of what kicked these strikes off, at least from, from the WGA's perspective and SAG following along with them, is uh, the evolution of the TV side of the business and how payment is structured, structured there with a a lot of uh, more episodic programming moving over to streaming, obviously, over these last few decades. But we've definitely seen a very sizable impact in the cinema industry, both with actors because of the, the SAG strike, not being able to go out and promote films. And also uh, we've seen like Dune get rolled back actors maybe not being able to do ADR to, to finish up their work on films that maybe are in post-production. So hopefully we will we will see an end to films getting moved down the schedule once this all kind of evens out. I mean, Russ, I know you're you're gonna be happy to not have Dune delayed a second time, hopefully. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Well and the other question is it's like let's say that the WGA signs and that everybody's happy there. And then let's let's take it a step further and say that maybe in the next couple of weeks, Ampest reaches a deal with SAG. If those things happen, is there any chance that Dune could get pulled back forward to November or December? Uh, maybe that's a Sean question. I don't know where things stand with all of that, but you know, you gotta wonder, could some of those could some of those date shuffles actually be undone at this point? Studios will have to look at how they've started their marketing campaigns, or in some cases, not started them. I, you know, with Dune, I I'm right there with you. I would love to see it come come back up on the calendar. Maybe they could you know pull it up a couple of months. I, d I don't know if at this point where Warner Brothers is at, if it would come back to this fall or not. But 
hey, you never know. I mean, crazier things have happened. Yeah, I mean, you're you're talking about like long lead publications having to have coverage, which is obviously going to be a big part of the promotion for a movie like that. So if if deadlines have been missed for some of those things, then, you know, maybe the date change just has to stick. Well, that's the good news, guys. Now let's move on to uh, the not-so-good news having to do with (laughs) September box office, specifically the fact that this past weekend was the lowest weekend in terms of box office of 2023 so far this year, hopefully, and ideally the lowest so far of 2023. We're not going to see another weekend go lower than that. Our previous low was Super Bowl weekend back in, I believe, February is when the Super Bowl happens. So yes, we had uh, out new in cinemas this weekend, the fourth film in the Expendables franchise with Lionsgate that opened to an estimated $8.3 million which is uh, quite a bit below all the previous three films in the Expendables franchise. We also had in its third weekend, The Nun, which grossed $8.4 million domestically per studio estimates. So uh, it's the same situation as last week, where films number uh, one and two are so close that we really can't confidently say which one came in first until studio actuals come in later in the day on Monday. So as we're recording this, it's effectively a tie box office between The Nun 2 and Expendables 4. We also had Sony's Dumb Money go from eight theater opening last weekend to 616 this past weekend that we're just leaving in advance, full wide release coming up on the 29th next weekend. So also out next weekend, in addition to the wide release of Dumb Money from Sony, we have from 20th Century Studios at Disney, The Creator, which uh, we have predicted for an opening weekend of 15 to 24 million. Paw Patrol, the Mighty Movie from Paramount. We're looking at 10 to 15 million opening weekend. And from Lionsgate, Saw X, the 10th film in the Saw franchise, opening weekend of 10 million to 15 million. Now, this upcoming weekend, this will be the final in what has been month of sequels, a, a September of sequels, let us say. Sean, I want to I want to look up, look back and ask you about this because lowest box office weekend of the year so far. We have had a lot of sequels come out over over these past few weeks. It's easy to kind of uh, look at this as a as a sort of a doom and gloom, very dire, very dire assessment of, of the current state of the cinema industry here, but kind of the asterisks you have, as you mentioned earlier, Russ, the strike, which has prohibited studios really from doing much by way of traditional marketing for the films that have come out in September. And like September's always kind of a slow month at the box office anyway. So looking at September from like a macro perspective, Sean, what's your assessment here? How bad was it really? Who were the winners and losers, let's say, of this September sequel corridor this year? It depends on how you look at it. Is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? This September is up from last year by a fairly decent amount, close to 20%. But, you know, at the same time, it's easy to argue that last year was one of the worst times we've seen on record in terms of a September. And we're still talking about numbers that are well off of 2019 when September was just a little bit under 700 million. It looks like this September will be roughly in the neighborhood of about 400 million. Talking about the strikes, I think that's had some impact as well. 
Certainly a lack of marketing campaigns, promotional windows, some delays here and there, but September hadn't really itself been majorly affected by any delays. I think this just really came down to the, the schedule itself. But the strengths were certainly there. We saw Equalizer 3 post the second best Labor Day debut ever after Shang-Chi two years ago. So that was a great start. And The Nun 2, down from the previous film, but still ultimately a, a very solid run. It's had a couple of pretty respectable holds in its second and third weekends for a franchise that's historically very front-loaded. And looking at you know, just a lot of these franchises, I think September of sequels has, has kind of been our, our mantra here. And that really ref- is reflective of just how sequels go in general. Sometimes these franchises are still relevant and interesting to audiences, and sometimes they aren't. And we certainly saw a case of the latter with Expendables 4, unfortunately, over this weekend. Uh, Russ, what would be your kind of uh, macro assessment in terms of looking back at the franchises that had new installments over the last month? And yeah, what has juice and, and what doesn't? I mean, I think the big, going back to when it was announced, the big question mark was always Expendables 4. The very concept of those movies is that, oh, there's more juice left in the careers of these various actors, especially if you put them together. You know, but as a fourth movie in a franchise and one that I think it was fair to say, like, who is this really for? Expendables 4 is the kind of movie that I think could have eked out a little bit more juice if it had actors who could go around and promote it you know that's the whole point of that franchise is to give you more exposure to those actors and if you can't have you know stallone and megan fox or statham and fox out there on podcasts and talk shows together and you know doing a you know splashy premiere and doing press and all that sort of stuff i think that really dims the expectations for a movie like that and frankly in a climate like this it also reduces the basic awareness that the movie even exists. You know, I think that's the thing that we even saw or earlier in the summer. You know, we discussed that with something like Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, where I don't really know that the audience that needed to know that movie was playing actually knew that it was playing. Things are very different now in terms of promotion and generating awareness, and especially generating awareness for theatrical versus streaming. So I think it's very possible that when Expendables bounces to streaming, that we're actually going to see good numbers for it in as much as numbers are ever reported with any degree of accuracy. But you know, maybe there is an audience for the movie, but that was always... For this month, it always seemed like the sticking point. I think it's also fair to mention, we don't know the international numbers on this movie yet. And historically, it is it is a franchise that has earned, I think, 80% on the, the last film was outside of North America. So even though we're talking about kind of a very down weekend on the domestic side, we're still waiting on, on those studio numbers to come in, likely at some point in the middle of this week that... You know, maybe we'll shed a little bit more of a positive light, I think, on the run. I know Lionsgate in particular is is still expecting to turn a profit on this, according to several sources that have talked to us. It's a very tricky conversation to have when we're just looking at the raw box office numbers. On Monday morning before we got On Monday morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we're only topic, talking about domestic. So it's, you know, it's certainly, it looks bad on one side. I think Russ is absolutely right to bring up a lot of those points about the audience, especially in North America, just not being aware and honestly probably distracted by football over the weekend. Well, and Sean, I want to ask as well, you know, how much uh, juice does just the Expendables franchise really have? And then on the <laughs> flip side of that, you have a franchise like The Conjuring with The Nun 2. Obviously, 
as you mentioned, that's still going strong. Uh, I mean, that's horror this time of year. It's it's definitely a good fit, kind of uh, in the middle of the Venn diagram between the Expendables and Conjuring franchises. You have out this upcoming weekend, Saw X, also from Lionsgate, also a franchise that's had kind of diminishing returns over the years. And I know our predictions for that are in the 10 to 15 million range for opening weekend, uh, topping out a domestic total. We have it as 22 to 35 million. Can you give us a little color on Saw X next weekend from Lionsgate and, and what kind of potential you think that has? You know, as of when we're recording this, the, those ranges may end up changing. For especially with four releases coming out this weekend, there's there's still a lot to look at going on in the market, which is a good thing because we can finally talk about four releases. So everything's a little bit in flux and, until we we get to those closer those final hours. But I think ultimately, you know, Saw is in a position where its its audience is what its audience is, in a lot very similar to Fast and Furious, kind of how you mentioned. I think the fact that it is returning to the October corridor, whereas the spiral kind of, I wouldn't say it was a spinoff. It was very much a part of the franchise continuity, Mm -hmm. but it released late pandemic in May really didn't generate a lot of traction. I think Sawyx can at least improve upon that. Bringing back Tobin Bell, who is really critical to these movies and always has been for the last 20 years, but its audience is certainly limited. And in terms of it's not going to grow at this point, it's a very specific type of horror and we've seen several horror movies already out there. So competition is something to look at. I think The Nun and The Conjuring in general, Paranormal is a little bit more mainstream accessible. Uh, than than, the, than the franchise that, uh, that revolutionized torture porn. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I know that's really going out on a limb to say. But that's, I think, even looking at The Nun, everything comes down to budget. You know, even though we talk about these movies that maybe see diminishing returns at the box office. I think at the end of the day, if there's a healthy-ish market overall, number one, exhibitors are, are happy to see money flowing in. They would rather have a little bit of something than nothing. And studios also feel it's important to mention that you know something like The Nun 2 costs less than $50 million to produce. It's earned over $200 million at the global box office. So even though we're talking about numbers that are down from previous franchise highs, these are still wins. And I think that's just a context we have to always maintain in that conversation. Polar opposite from Saw X, Paw Patrol. I mean, we haven't we haven't had a kids movie go wide release in theaters for a while. So certainly that kind of speaks well for the potential for this is the second film in, in, in the Paw Patrol franchise, unlike a Disney or a DreamWorks or, or Sony animation in the sense that like, Parents will know what Paw Patrol is, but it's not really something right. that's crossed over to to yeah. the more adult without kids segment of the population. Yeah, and you know, in contrast to Saw, it's coming into a market where there really is no other movie out there like it. The the family audience hasn't had much to go out and see since you know Ninja Turtles in August, maybe Blue Beetle to an extent, but that's you know we're still that's well over a month at this point. So it's it's I think it's it's in a good position. Sales look pretty solid for it. It will not have any Thursday previews, so it's just going to be an old school traditional Friday night opening weekend. But really, in the weeks after, still not a lot of content out there for for kids and families. So I would expect it to hold decently well through October. 
And the big question mark for, for me this upcoming weekend, uh, the creator for 20th Century Studios, of course, owned by Disney, its original IP, which is not definitely not something that we've, uh, we've seen a ton of this month, but also just in general. Russ, I mean, it looks like a Star Wars movie that's not a Star Wars movie. It's from the director of Rogue One. So clearly that connection's there. Like how much is a movie like Creator affected by the studio's lack of ability to, to really uh, do promotion and have have the stars out there promoting it. And and I want to just kind of open it up uh, more generally to ask, what are some of uh, our, our favorite original IP movies that have, have come out over these past uh, few years since, let's say, 2019? So number one, with a movie like The Creator, you've got John David Washington starring. And, you know, this is somebody who I think is an interesting talent and who isn't really a movie star in the sense that he doesn't open movies, you know, mm-hmm. that fandom isn't there. And I expect Sean would probably agree with me on that point. He hasn't been tested in that, in that Through no fault way, of his own. You know? I mean, he's had Black Klansman no, and then I mean, Tenet, which obviously he really wasn't, no one was doing that much by way of karma for Tenet given. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, the thing is like Tenet has kind of, a fandom for Tenant has really grown over the last couple of years. You know, you'll find way more positive conversation about Tenant now than two months after the movie opened. You know, people have really come around on that movie very quickly. And so that might help something like the creator. I mean, certainly 20th Century Studios has had Gareth Edwards out like crazy promoting the creator, doing a lot of interviews, talking about it. As much as possible because they can't have any of the stars out there. I think having stars out there would help because with a movie like this, it's always good to give somebody kind of a human connection to click onto. It's one thing to say like, hey, this looks really cool, which it does. And it's original, which is great. But you know, as far as a selling point, I don't know if original IP is much of a selling point at this point. You need a little something else, and and that's where having the, the actors being able to promote would really, really give it a boost. I hope it does well. It's, it is, like you say, the kind of movie we don't see very often. We certainly haven't seen much of it this year. And some of the ones, you know, ironically, 20th Century Studios is doing more of these kind of movies than maybe anybody else is, but a lot of them are going direct to Hulu. Mm. You know, they just opened, what is it, No One Will Save You, the Alien Invasion movie, that same studio, and that just opened on Hulu this past weekend. Obviously, it's a franchise movie, but Prey, the Predator prequel thing, also opened on Hulu earlier this year. Good movie, would have played well to an audience theatrically, but, you know, they went with Hulu on it. So it's it's interesting that this one is going theatrical, and yeah, I hope the strategy works out for everybody involved. I mean, when you look back at uh, at the original IP that's come out over these past few years, and I, as is normal, I mean, a lot of them are horror films, are genre films like Megan, Nope, Smile, Barbarian. I mean, I don't know what the budget was for the creator, but I'm going to guess it was a heck of a lot bigger than something like Barbarian from a first time feature director, you know, it definitely, I I would say, feels like a like a risk, maybe a riskier proposition than some of those smaller budgeted products. Supposedly, the creator is in the eighty million dollar okay. range. All right. Is the that's the number that I've seen bounced around for creator. The accuracy of that is difficult to truly estimate. But you know, in interviews, Edwards has talked about like you know he pitched this movie 
and the studio was skeptical that he could deliver what he was promising for the money he was asking for. I did read one interview that maybe was at Uproxx where he talked about, you know, he said, how about you do this? Pay for like a week of test shooting on location because they wanted to, they didn't want to do this, you know, on stages. They wanted to go to real places and they went kind of far afield to find locations for this movie. And he discusses how they basically went with like a skeleton crew just picked up a lot of shots and then took that to, I think, ILM and was like, hey, this is what we want to do. This is the money we've got. And with this little bit of like kind of scouting budget that the studio gave us, what can you turn around for us? And supposedly the results were very close to what we see in the final movie. And this is with without a lot of the kind of technological prep that would usually go into making an effects-heavy movie. You know, they didn't have a lot of green-suited stand-ins on set and all that sort of stuff. Supposedly, the results were really good. They took it back to the studio, and the studio was like, wait, you did this for, like, the $2 million we just gave you or something? Okay, yeah, here's the money that you asked for. Go make this movie. That's a good surprise for a studio to have. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and I think some of that maybe comes from the fact that, like, 20th Century Studios is currently being run by a guy named Steve Asbell, who's been connected to things like, you know, the Alien franchise at Fox for a long time and in Fox's prior incarnation, he seems like a very genre-friendly studio head. So right now, it seems like if you have this kind of movie that you want to try to do, Fox is maybe a very good place to get it done. Whether that will last, I don't know. But the fact that they are willing to put this into theaters rather than taking it uh, to Hulu is, you know, hopefully a good sign. Before we go to our feature segment sponsored by Spotlight Cinema Networks with Rich Dotridge, president of the Independent <laughs> Cinema Alliance. Of the original IP movies that have come out over these past few years, I know like whether history movies count as original IP is, is kind of a gray area. Like the Academy puts them in the adapted screenplay category, da-da-da-da-da. So like cutting that out of the mix, I would have to say nope. I know we have uh, some some knives out. Is, is certainly a good uh, a good proposition there as well. Sean and Russ, what's your highlight for original IP recently? Yeah, I mean, I think if if we're eliminating historical stuff, that would knock out Oppenheimer for me. I could talk about that movie endlessly. So we'll just say, say that's going to be my answer if that counts. But if not, honestly, Knives Out. That's a movie that's really stuck with me over the last few years. There's so many. It's hard to pick just one, honestly. I'm sure I'm probably forgetting something from like the mid-2010s. But Knives Out is one, I think, especially from a writing perspective, as I've gone back to that movie and rewatched it and really kind of studied Ryan Johnson's dialogue and his screenplay. I just I admire it so much. So that's certainly a big one for me. I love Knives Out. I think it's a great movie. I liked Snope when I saw it. I like it a lot more now. Mm-hmm. I've watched it a couple of times recently. Same, you know, I bought the same. 4K and, and and I'm like, oh, this, that movie has such a weird rhythm that I'm really into it. I think the two standouts for me, and they're very different movies, would be Everything Everywhere All at Once because it's just such an insane movie. And then also Barbarian which also came from 20th Century Studios. And to me, Barbarian is almost the one that is really the standout because not only is it an original IP, it's a relatively untested filmmaker. You know, like, nope, 
good movie, but it's like there was no chance that Universal was not going to make the next Jordan Peele movie. You know, Jordan Peele, when he was going into Nope, was in a position where he could probably do just about anything he wanted. And he's probably still in that position. And everything everywhere all at once is certainly different. But when you're talking about the Daniels plus A24, they already had a relationship with Swiss Army Man, that kind of thing. It's not like that came out of nowhere and certainly, but it, you know, it's not like that movie was a slam dunk. It's, to not, it's not like anyone expected massive. it to have all that, it, I mean, box office success, award season success, and, and it really needed that long theatrical run, I think, to get there. Absolutely. But I think for me, the one that really stands out as kind of wild and unusual is Barbarian, just from the sense of it was a movie that nobody wanted to make. It was passed by a number of places. Originally not even supposed to go to cinemas. Exactly. It was going to be a streaming debut, all of these sort of things. And it in that all of the things about that movie just kept working. And it's a fun, surprising movie that works well with an audience. It works well at home. So yeah, it's not my favorite movie of the year by a long shot or, or anything like that. But I think if you're talking about standout original IP, uh, Barbarian really, really does kind of jump out to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big swing. It definitely looks like the creator also. A big swing for 20th Century Studios, them putting it into cinemas. So yeah, that that's one that I'm, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing. Well, Russ and Sean, thank you uh, so much once again for joining us. And then after this quick break, we will be hearing from a Geneva Convention Award winner, president of Independent Cinema Chain Warehouse Cinemas, and a leader at the Independent Cinema Alliance, Rich Dottridge, in an interview sponsored by Spotlight Cinema Networks in our Indie Focus series. Be right back. Rich, thanks so much for joining us on this Indie Focus episode of the Box Office Podcast, uh, sponsored by Spotlight Cinema Networks over here at Box Office. There's a really strong affection that we have for the indie art house luxury side of the cinema industry. It's it's definitely an affinity that our partner for this series, Spotlight, shares as well. First question, kind of uh, backwards looking, you know, or independent cinemas, that's, you know, it's art house cinemas, it's, it's small chains, it's single location cinemas that play a, a variety of different different films. So it runs the gamut. How did the summer kind of go this far in in terms of independent cinema, combining kind of the world of the art house and then the more mainstream Barbie Oppenheimer of it all? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're hearing from members at the ICA is it was an extremely strong summer. Uh, We're definitely uh, happy with, you know, I I think generally happy with the box office number, but I, I, you know, also would say that I love the counter-programming aspect of this summer, mm-hmm. if you can call it that on a larger time frame. I mean, when you have the obvious Barbie and Oppenheimer in the same weekend that both perform, and then you have the Sound of Freedom, and then even even the other, you know, big IPs with The Flash, Indiana Jones, things like that, you know, I think it made for an aggregate box office, and I think the key takeaway is that more films across all the audiences, when we have the big box office, not, not just the big blockbuster every single every single month, or every single week, I should say, and then I think it also highlights the importance, both on the small independent side and even the large circuits, that, you know, the small, small and, and mid-sized films are still important to our industry. Yeah, it definitely feels great to have uh, a couple movies coming out uh, for a week rather than just one big tentpole. I, I think it's the way it used to be before all this, uh, all these bad last two years, and it feels nice to be back there. Yeah, I agree. 
So from from the gamut of independent stuff like Sound of Freedom and then stuff like Barbie, I mean, aside from this being a really good summer in terms of movies and the quality of, of movies and obviously the box office, we, we finally hit $4 billion this summer again. I feel like this summer there's almost been like a, a sea change in, in terms of cinema marketing. There have been, I mean, with Barbie and Sound of Freedom in particular, it feels like it's been almost a transformative summer in terms of how cinema marketing has evolved. Do you, how do you feel about, uh, you know, what independents have been able to do marketing wise this summer or what has this taught independents about marketing? Because obviously like indies aren't going to have the budget or the resources of a Warner Brothers or a, or a big chain, but it, it sounds like there, there's still lessons there. Yeah. I think, you know, the ICA is always from an educational platform talks about that going to the cinema needs to be an event. And I think what Barbie taught us in spades was that those cinemas who leaned into the eventizing, the drink specials, you know, within the, certainly the guidelines of Warner Brothers, but just made it a, a party and sort of rode the hype. But I think those cinemas who did the event side of things or created the experience beyond just the movie of Barbie are the ones that overperform. So I think that's the big sort of exclamation point on this summer. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it's a lesson learned. It's, I think, you know, there's a lot of films throughout the year that we should be doing similar things with. It doesn't have to be, you know, a, a big blockbuster like Barbie, but even some of the small to mid-sized films, we can, you know, add a food and beverage component to it or add, a, add an event to it and motivate people to get out of the house for entertainment, to have more than the movie experience. And that's the biggest marketing thing mm-hmm. I've seen across the board with independence. If you look, if you look through, for example, social media for ICA members, you'll see that they just leaned into even the social media side of it to get the word out on what they were doing on that event. So it becomes a social strategy as well. I think they're doing a better job. And honestly, what I talk about all the time is I think the days of the studios doing most of the marketing, not say most, all of the marketing, I think I think exhibitors should take probably 20 to 30 percent responsibility for getting people out as well. That's through what I just mentioned. Yeah. I mean, especially when you look at Chase weeks. I mean, the studio's already moved on to something else, but there's potential there for exhibitor marketing. Like people still want to, maybe they saw Barbie one weekend and you can convince them to go see Oppenheimer next weekend or see Sound of Freedom. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of opportunities there and it doesn't have to take a lot of money to do that. Yeah. And I think even, even the fundamentals, I think we've, I don't know, at least I don't want to speak for all independence, but you know, I think independence, putting trailers up appropriately, the sort of the blocking and tackling of marketing and the in-theater marketing, mm-hmm. making sure that they have tickets on sale at the right time, make sure that they have the right programming and showtime set up. You know, all those things, I think, even, I think were highlighted this past summer. And it, it seems basic, but I think if we do a better job of that, it's a, it's a you know, it's an increase in the box office if we did do those things effectively. Mm-hmm. What did Warehouse do special for Barbie? I know you, I always like the, the specialty drinks that y'all put out. The biggest the, for Barbie we did we decorated the lobby and, and went you know all pink obviously but for the drink it was an inflated little flamingo that sat around a pink slushy drink that we oh, did nice. we called it the Malibu the Malibu I think is what we called it and yeah it, we sold a ton of those things I think the staff is tired of blowing up little inflatable flamingos. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we have Taylor Wasn't Swift coming. I don't know if you're you're having any kind of inflatable situation there, but it sounds like there are opportunities there. I mean, I, I can't imagine just talking about getting tickets up on time. 
with Taylor Swift, you had like a few hours notice. Taylor Swift was certainly welcomed and appreciative, and I think everyone's grateful for that. The, the you know the, the box office that that's going to bring. But yeah, I think it's the same thing. I mean, I think you know Swift Nation or whatever it's called. Like, yeah. you need, like as like as exhibitors, we need to like lean into the fact that she's just got a, a brand of all brands. I mean, Barbie was a brand. Taylor Swift is a brand. We have to figure out ways, you know, within the, you know, constraints of the IP, mm-hmm. you know, we have to find ways to drive, drive people to come out for a night with friends, you know, and, and, and fun. And that includes food and beverage a lot of times and mm-hmm. how we, how we decorate the lobby and how we, you know, eventize it again. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and your employees, I mean, they can evangelize as well, even if you're not so much tapped into Swifties, Swift Nation, I, you know, that, that sort of, you probably have someone on staff at, at one of your cinemas who does and who's excited and who has ideas and, and wants to spread the word. We do actually. Her name is Ariana Taylor. She's our community liaison manager at one of our, in our Hagerstown location and she's a Swiftie for sure. And so we just said, Hey, can you write an event brief? Like you would want to go to this event. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, I think she, she did that within 24 hours. The next thing you know, we have an event. Uh, you know, scheduled across the circuit. So yes, I love that. that that's the perfect, that. just the community liaison manager. That that's what she. And it's like my, this is my time to shine. This is the assignment I've been waiting for my whole life. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know we kind of we've spoken to you in the past about the ICA marketplace. It's it's not as as shiny subject as as Taylor Swift or or special events or marketing. But like at the end of the day, independence perhaps more than larger chains. You know, you have slim margins and you have to save money where you can. How's that going? Because it's still, it's still pretty new. It's been, what, two years now that it's been in operation? Yeah, the, the IC Marketplace, I guess, is probably full boat with our group purchasing organization, which is called Crescendo. They're an outsourced version. It's just, it's been a couple of years since we really leaned into it, I would say, yeah. It's going okay. Honestly, there's a, it's a heavy lift is, is the way we describe it because we're getting vendors on board to it at the end of the day needs to be a win-win with the vendor so we can't just go to the marketplace get a discount and slap it on the website so what yeah. we're really trying to do probably our biggest lift of all and it's something that might be good for the article is we are trying to uncover opportunities through the distributor models when it comes to uh, food and beverage specifically so the reason that's that's hard is because there's just um, there's a heavy lift to unpacking that and putting it back together and getting commitments from exhibitors. But um, we're making a lot of progress. We'll probably announce something in the next 30 to 60 days, I would say. That's a pretty big brand that we've oh, worked out a deal with. And then beyond that, there's the usual, you know, some, some discounts, savings here and there. But we're really focused on trying to find the things that move the needle on a P&L statement for both the small independents and the midsize, which are two different worlds. Right. Like the Mm -hmm. midsize circuits probably already negotiated a pretty good price compared to maybe the the small independent cinema. And bringing those two worlds together has also been a challenge. But we're pushing hard. The GPO is working hard crescendo. And hopefully over the the next couple of years, I would say I, I my hope is that we accelerate all the effort that we've spent the last two years. It really starts to come together in the next two years because there's been so much time and energy. It just takes a while to get those things across the finish line. It's mm-hmm. slightly frustrating for a serial entrepreneur like me, but yeah. like it is, it is. <laughs> we just have to keep keep pushing. So yeah, I believe it. So that's that's going to be one of the the key priorities. 2024. That must be inc- incredibly frustrating not to be able to just just 
get it out the door, but you want to maintain those relationships. And I should say the SC marketplace has delivered on a number of programs and people are saving money for sure. It's just, you know, we just want to do it at scale with mm-hmm. big numbers and big programs. And that's, that's the dream. In 2024, yeah. I mean, what are the longer term priorities you're, you're looking at? Some of these projects that are going to take a little longer or, or the, the fundamentals that maybe need, you know, reassessing from an independent cinema perspective. Yeah, and our strategic objectives really haven't changed from year to year in the last couple of years, I would say. So I'll, I'll reiterate the same things, and that is the first one is studio relations. Mm-hmm. So we really want to um, foster, frankly, healthy relationships with Hollywood and talk about uh, specifically when it comes to the small independence, uh, the flexibility and availability of film. That still is a challenge for the small independents. Mm-hmm. But just studio relations as a whole, let's have conversations. Let's uh, Let's go out to L.A. and you know, talk about some of the challenges independents have and um, and strengthen that. Uh, the second thing is the IC marketplace, so we'll keep pushing on that, as I mentioned, and at the end of the day, trying to aggregate our buying power to save money across the board for members. And then lastly is the uh, studio marketing partnerships that um, I'm personally working on, which is basically finding, I think, um, I don't know, new and innovative ways to leverage the owned media of cinemas to try to to try to get get the word out on film and ultimately increase the box office for a given title. We've had success with our ICA marketing pilots in that regard. We've worked mm-hmm. with Sony, Paramount, Angel Studios, and um, talking with all the majors really about this. And uh, hopefully that is a um, opportunity to grow revenues for independents. Mm-hmm. Again, who may who may not be able to on an individual basis have those conversations, have that efficiency. So we're trying to build that efficiency on the marketing side. Kind of on that same subject of, of studio relations, another big story of 2023, of course, has been uh, the second National Cinema Day, which Indies participated in and, and, and were, were a big part of. I know, like, from the the NATO side, the cinema side, the studio relations side, that's not an easy, that's not an easy knot to untangle when it comes to, to setting all those things up. In the past, there's been discussions about, you know, what could we do that, that's nationwide, maybe that are, that's from an indie perspective or an art house perspective. I know that there's been like, you know, things, programs like that that are like geared towards individual cities. Is that something that you think has potential, like a, a big marketing, like go to indie cinema, national cinema day type campaign or like you wouldn't have to worry about breaking antitrust laws at least. Yeah, honestly, I'll, I'll, I'll use this to say that, you know, the ICA and NATO have, have a great relationship and we complement each other's missions. It's a different, obviously we're a subset of the bigger industry, which is the independence. And as a result, we have different needs and frankly, why the ICA was, was, was developed. But at a large level, I think we're going to support NATO's initiatives for mm-hmm. now, at least. You're right, though. The, the, the heavy lifts in National Cinema Day was massive. And frankly, the ICA is mostly volunteers at this point. So yeah. we don't have the resources. And it's a good example for us or a good opportunity for us to support NATO and something like National Cinema Day and National Popcorn Day. And we make sure and mention that on ICA Live. We put it in our email blast and we're like, mm-hmm. hey, make sure you support this thing. And then obviously, you know, the framework of both of those national campaigns, if you will, give you the flexibility to to make it your own. So we encourage independents to, you know, make it your own. Do your own specials, do your own way of messaging it. But uh, NATO's really, uh, I think, positioned well to to execute those on a large scale. And that's the 20,000-foot view and the the role of NATO anyways. Mm -hmm. But, you know, never say never. 
Thank you once again for listening. And thanks to Rich, Russ, and Sean. That's something of a, of a tongue twister uh, <laughs> for appearing in this week's episode. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by Box Office Pro, the Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. Please tune in next Thursday for our next episode and the second and final episode in our Geneva Convention mini-series. Thanks so much for listening and have a great rest of your week. <laughs>